everybody. You're listening to Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. The podcast where we take you on a deeper dive into the lives of the animals at Georgia Aquarium and the people who care for them. Coming up on this episode. I mean, a lot of the really critical things that we need to happen come at levels that are way above what most people have access to. And that's not to say that you shouldn't do the little things, right? Getting rid of plastic straws is a thing that makes us feel good, but it ultimately isn't going to be the thing that stops climate change, which I think is the existential threat of not just our time, but probably all of humanity that we're going to have to deal with. I mean, we're all connected by the ocean in some way, shape, or form. It doesn't matter how far you are from that ocean, we are connected. By the very air we breathe, half of it comes from the ocean. You know, so we are connected. By the very food we eat, by the economy, we're all connected there. I'm Josh Blaylock. For the past 20 years, I've been in the zoological community. I was an animal care specialist for 15 of those years, caring for sea lions, dolphins, otters, walruses, birds, and a wide variety of different species. And now I'm very happy to be the senior manager of exhibits and projects here at Georgia Aquarium. In this podcast, I'm going to introduce you to some of my amazing co-workers and tell you some behind-the-scenes stories of how Georgia Aquarium works. This is Life Below the Surface, presented by Carriage Kia. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is Georgia's leading Kia dealer and one of the top dealers in the entire nation. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. Welcome back to another episode of Life Below the Surface. Believe it or not, this is episode six. I'm your host, Josh, and today I'm joined by two doctors. Don't worry, I'm feeling okay. I'm being joined today by Dr. Katie Lyons, one of our research scientists, and Dr. Dane Budo, who is a marine biologist and the director of external engagement. Dr. Dane, Dr. Katie, doctor, doctor, welcome to the podcast. Now, you both play a huge role in our conservation and research initiatives here at the aquarium. So, and Katie, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell me just a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, so, like as you said, I'm a research scientist here. Basically, that means that my job is to help increase our scientific presence in the scientific community. So, my specialty is on shark and ray biology. So, pretty much all of my projects that I work on have to do with their reproduction, on their ecology, or their physiology in one way or another. Very cool, Dane. Same question. What do you do here? Great. So I'm in charge of external engagement. What is external engagement for our mission-based programs? So research, conservation, education from communities just next door to the aquarium to communities thousands of miles away relating to climate change, ocean conservation, marine protected areas. What do communities need and how can we help? That's where I come in. So that's kind of a, a great kind of lead in because it's, it's no secret to us especially, but also to our listeners that many species on the planet today are in danger of becoming extinct. Dr. Katie, can you tell us just a little bit, like kind of give us some insight into this, like what is causing, especially in the, in the marine environment, what is causing so many species to become threatened or endangered? Humans. 
<laughs> so we have an unfortunate large footprint that we leave on the environment and we leave that in many different ways. So fishing is one of the number one causes for a lot of marine animals, particularly the ones that a lot of people tend to care about. So think about your sharks, like your large marine megafauna and, and animals of that sort. So fishing definitely is a really big pressure, but it is also one of the main protein sources that a lot of people rely on in other countries. So it's something like 70% of the world relies on some sort of marine protein to feed their families. You know, we have this need to want to be able to have people be able to feed their families, but we also need to be able to do that sustainably so we can have food for future generations as well as intact environments for people to be able to show all the variety of species that we have in the world. So really it comes down to the way that humans use resources. And right now we're not doing a very good job of being stewards of this planet. That's a pretty solid answer there, Katie. So Dane, I'm gonna actually ask you this one. It's just a little bit different. If everything that Katie just mentioned, if that trend continues, especially for communities and, and populations around the world, that trend continues, what will our world, what will our ocean look like if we keep doing these unsustainable type of actions? Well, you know, it will lead to a situation where you have the ecosystem services that all of these species provide, the ones that we like to see, the big ones, but also the tiny ones. These ecosystem services will affect human beings and communities and welfare and all of those features, that will no longer be the case. So our food security, our mere existence, especially in small island developing states that are bombarded by hurricanes and storms because of loss of reef activity, climate change, all of this will change. So our very lifestyle will change because we depend on these species. So oftentimes we speak about saving the oceans. We're really saving ourselves by research and conservation of the oceans. I think that's a very important kind of point is that when people think of conservation or when there's an argument that conservation isn't important because, oh, it's not really affecting me, Dane, you might be able to speak on this a little bit more. That's not really true. Conservation affects all of us. And as you just said, it's conservation is in a way almost a little bit more of a selfish kind of thing because yes, we are saving that particular species, but it ends up in the end benefiting us. Is that something that you something that you have like been challenged by in your career so far, trying to get people to understand that? Definitely. I mean, we're all connected by the ocean in some way, shape, or form. It doesn't matter how far you are from that ocean, we are connected. By the very air we breathe, half of it comes from the ocean. You know, so we are connected. By the very food we eat, by the economy, we're all connected there. You mentioned the word selfish, and I'm happy that you mentioned that word, because if we were truly selfish, if human beings were truly selfish, we would protect the environment a lot more than we are right now, because we're protecting our needs, our need for food, our need for wonderful beaches around us to lay on a, on a vacation. If we are truly selfish, we will protect the environment a lot more than we are right now. So, okay, Dr. Katie, with, with that being said right there, what is, what is something that, say, the average person, or let's say you're, you're having a conversation with someone brand new and you say, well, I'm a research scientist. We're going to get into it later. You get to go out into the field and, and have some pretty cool experiences. What is a way that, say, the, the average person that you bump into at a you know, restaurant or out and about or something like that, what is something that, say, you would give as advice 
to the average person to try to kind of help get these messages, especially the ones that, that Dane just mentioned? How do you kind of get those messages across? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is go vote. I mean, a lot of the really critical things that we need to happen come at levels that are way above what most people have access to. And that's not to say that you shouldn't do the little things, right? Getting rid of plastic straws is a thing that makes us feel good, but it ultimately isn't going to be the thing that stops climate change, which I think is the existential threat of not just our time, but probably all of humanity that we're going to have to deal with. So I would say the first thing is to to vote for people who are enacting policies that are going to help us be sustainable on this planet. The second thing that I would say is to know where your food comes from and think about the types of resources that you use and what are ways that you can cut back on that. Is that taking public transit maybe a few more times than you might want to? Is that buying locally? as well as making sure that the seafood that you use is sustainably sourced. So a lot of the seafood we eat in the United States, we actually import it from other countries. But we have one of the best well-managed fisheries here in the U.S. So we really should be supporting our commercial fishermen because, again, we go through those regulations. We're making sure that things are done properly. When you import it, you have no idea where it came from, how it was obtained, and there's just a lot of implications that come around with that. Very good answer. Dane, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to add, add one more level to that. Um, I work a lot with marine protected areas, and some of these marine protected areas are actually no-take zones. And when you go into a community and to say, you know what, we're going to try and get these fisheries, fish stocks to rebound, but it would mean some sacrifice from the community. You cannot fish in this area at all. And I'm not talking about commercial fisheries. I'm talking about artisanal fisheries, small scale, just someone going out, capturing fish, catching fish for two hours and selling that fish and doing it again the next day because they've spent that money on food. They spent that money on, you know, for, for kids to go to school that day. Next day, they have to do the exact same thing again. So trying to convince fishers to give up an area to get that long-term gain is one of the tough ones, but it has been done and it can be done because they're seeing the benefits of that. They're seeing where their impact or their you know, impact has created a problem with fisheries. But here, let's, let's, let's turn the tide now. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of approach, but you have to support them. Figure out what, what else can they do while they can't fish in this area for 20 years, help them to get to that point, you know? So I think that it's, it's a working relationship. It's not just what they can do alone, but what we can do together. And it's very difficult for us to stay as scientists. This is what needs to be done, just do it. You have to bear in mind that this will cause a fallout from person's livelihoods and be cognizant of that. All right, guys, I'm gonna be very, very honest with you. I'm gonna ground this here for just a second. This is episode six. I've talked to a lot of people from the aquarium, a lot of very passionate people. Hearing you two already in the very beginning of this has got me jazzed up. And it's not just the orange mocha frappuccino I just had that's really causing me to, it's you guys, your passion is infectious. And you're two of my favorite people in the entire building. And it's interesting and I'm glad you guys are here because a lot of folks that are listening, like when they think Georgia Aquarium, they think of this massive underwater palace in the middle of downtown Atlanta they don't realize that we actually have people that, yeah, that are stationed here in the building, but their jobs are actually well outside the building. Georgia Aquarium's footprint is not just here in downtown Atlanta in Pemberton Place. 
we are actually going out into the field. We're trying to make impacts across the world, which is really cool. And a lot of people don't know that. So I'm really glad you guys are here to honestly, to tell your story. So Dane, let's, let's kind of take it back a bit for you. What kind of got you into this? Like what got you into caring about the ocean? And, and honestly, from what you've said so far, it's a mixture of caring about the ocean and caring about people. And more people, I think, need to kind of meet in that middle and understand how connected they are. But how did you get started? Well, you know, um, this goes back to my childhood. I grew up in a tiny rural village in Jamaica, 20, 30 people. Very poor, you know, no running water is that kind of thing. We have to find our food ourselves or grow it ourselves. I've always wanted to be a marine biologist and I couldn't swim. And all of my family couldn't swim at that time either. I'm the only one in my parents' family that can swim. But I've always wanted to be a marine biologist, to be fascinated by the ocean, watching black and white shows. And I kind of dated myself here. There were no color televisions when I was growing up as a child, all right? Available at that time to us. But I was still fascinated by it. I was in total awe about it. But having that background of, you know, the small-scale, locally-led initiatives and realizing that when I want fish to eat for Sunday dinner, I have to go to the fisherman who's coming in on that morning and buy fish from them. And you slowly see that going down. The stocks are going down. It's affecting the price of this fish and we can't afford it. So it affected my dinner table in much of the same way. And that's what's kind of driven me to do something about it. Let's stop complaining about it. Let's stop documenting decline. Let's flip that. Let's change it. I want to be an agent of change. And I think that I have been in some respects, and I want to continue to do that. But what, what I've realized is not just parachuting in and thinking that you know what's best for a community or a country. Ask them, what would work for you? How can we help? And taking that approach and helping people for their own livelihoods, that excites me. That's what I want to do. I want to make a change. I want to be impactful in that way because in the long run, it would benefit us all. So you're basically, you're living proof of this type of mentality working, coming from where you've come from and seeing those changes and things. And, and you've dedicated your career now to improving what you saw as a decline, not just you know for you and your family, but also for your countrymen and now for you know people around the world, basically. No, of course. And I mean, you know, I've set up, protected areas and fishermen at the start of this have been brutal to me. How can you take away my livelihood? You're telling me I can't go to work for the next 10 years in this area. And for that to be flipped because they're seeing the benefits of that and they're coming to me, thank you for helping. And, you know, and that's fine. I love that kind of gratitude, but that's not why I'm doing it. The fish will never tell me thanks. Okay. If you're expecting that you're in the wrong field. If a marine scientist is expecting a pat on the back from the things that we're protecting, do not get into this field. You know, so you have to have that deep-seated passion for it to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and head out to sea and out there for 12, 13, 14 hours. That's what drives you. And if you're feeling that you're not having that impact, do something else, you know, because that's what counts. You need passion to drive this impact. Amazing. Katie, it's going to be tough to top that one there. That's a pretty awesome answer, but... What's your background? I know you're from the Southern California area originally, correct? 
the Southern California, yes. The yeah. Southern yeah. California, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm from the L.A. area. Go Dodgers. So growing up, I also wanted to be a marine biologist since I was very tiny. Um, my parents, you know, were middle class family. My mom worked two jobs. And so on Monday nights, that was dad's night. And he would take us to the beach, which wasn't terribly far away. Um, we'd go fishing, play in the sand, look for sand crabs. And my parents were very instrumental in allowing me to pursue my passion. So my sister and I had the very quintessential bedroom that we shared growing up. So on one side was all horses, on the other side was all dolphins. And so my parents would enroll us in, you know, after school programs that had to do with marine biology of some sort with our actual local aquaria. So I kept that passion all through high school. And when I was going to college, you know, I pursued places where I could do a degree in marine biology, which in retrospect, you don't actually have to have a degree proper in marine biology. But that led me to UC Santa Cruz, which is where I did my bachelor's. And then, you know, when I was getting ready to finish up my degree, I, you know, knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to further my understanding. I'm fascinated by how animals work and how their adaptations allow them to use the environments that they inhabit. So I pursued a master's degree and then eventually a degree, my PhD degree, that was looking at environmental contaminants, so things that we've produced and have stuck around for decades because we literally manufactured those chemicals to do so and asked, well, what is the impact that this has on elasmobranch species? And I was using the round stingray as a model species to see what, you know, what can we see in this mesopredator that might be extrapolated up to some of the largest animals that we know bioaccumulate high levels of these man-made contaminants. So that's kind of my path of how I pursued, was really the questions of how animals work. Very cool. In a way as well, kind of similar to Dane's story there, it's kind of like that environment that you got to experience and stuff, being so close to the ocean. It's a really, really cool and actually very inspiring to hear you both talk about it. It's uh, that's pretty awesome. But Katie, in, in your time growing up in the Los Angeles area, going to the beach and, and, and seeing the ocean, what kind of changes when you go back to visit, what kind of changes have you noticed in your quote unquote home environment? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? You know, kind of describe that a little bit. Sure. I mean, I wasn't alive to remember the smog problem that Los Angeles had. That's a very famous thing, right? And this comes with regulation, right? We had to regulate the emissions coming out of our cars. Like it is physically unhealthy for people to breathe those sorts of combusted materials. So that, you know, the air had definitely gotten better. So that would be more of my parents' generation that would recall some of that. But in just thinking about when I go home to visit, it's hotter and there's more fires, right? Like California essentially is on fire almost year round and the fires only keep getting more and more destructive. And with regards to heat, like we grew up without air conditioning. My parents literally don't have AC when it's three digit temperatures in Fahrenheit, obviously. So there are changes that we, you know, that you can see with your very own eyes, like climate change is, is happening and we're not really working at a pace to 
avoid some of probably the most destructive things that will eventually befall us. And I think getting back to some of your points earlier and what Dane was saying, you know, we want to be selfish, but we're also very short-sighted. So we need to be selfish and look further into the future. So looking further into the future with you guys both being here at Georgia Aquarium now, Katie, so what is your what is your day-to-day like in our careers and our jobs and our lives? Yeah, we, we can look at what is every single day, but then we also have to look at the, the big picture. And I would assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that in a research scientist's day-to-day, it's a little bit of, okay, what's ahead of me? And then what is ultimately had like a big picture kind of thing. So kind of describe what a aquarium research scientist kind of describe what your what your day to day and then, you know, kind of go forward, kind of let us know like day in the life and then a month in the life. And then how does that all kind of come together? Sure. So I would say that no two days are the same, which is nice. Like I like that. I don't want to say unpredictability, but it keeps you on your toes. It keeps things interesting. People who are listening to this won't see me doing my clackety clack, but I spend a lot of time on the computer. <laughs> so well, they're going to hear it. So yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I spend a lot of time on the computer, whether that is meetings, planning collaborative work with colleagues, whether that's writing manuscripts, because that is the currency of how our field operates. So it is very much a publisher parish. So if you're not able to write and communicate your science and get that out there, then what is the point? So those are kind of some aspects of my job. We have a variety of interns, a couple volunteers that come in here and now, and as well as graduate students that I advise. So you have all those aspects, and then there's a a whole field program component that I run as well. So when you kind of zoom out to the month look, um, I probably travel 50% of every month. So it's quite a lot of on the go, which like I said, can be exciting. I've gotten to go to some really cool places places as part of my job, which I would not honestly be able to afford (laughs) as a regular citizen, but it can be tiring traveling all the time as well. So gotcha. Well, Dane, kind of the same question, external engagement. What does that day to day, month to month year kind of look like for you? Take us through what you do. Well, I mean, as a, as a, you know, a marine biologist as well, we're looking for opportunities to make an impact. So a lot of it is relationship building. It's reaching out to persons, whether it's existing relationships or new relationships, organizations, local communities, persons, single persons that can help us to work together in the ocean conservation field, pretty much any corner of the world. There's no shortage of need for what we can do. So we have to be mindful of choosing, you know, the right ones, the, the ones that will have our best interest at heart, be able to benefit from what we can bring. Because if we allow ourselves to choose every single thing, we just be diluted and not make that kind of impact that we want to create. So a lot of my day today is building those relationships, going out into the field, meeting these persons, helping them to develop projects, whether it's marine protected areas, I mean, we're, we're launching two new fish sanctuaries that we helped to develop in Jamaica, my homeland, which is very, you know, very near and dear to my heart. So that's that's a special, a special two places. But every year we want to be developing more of these conservation areas. You know, the entire world is looking to protect 30% by 2030, but we want to protect more than that. Because it will take a lot more than 30% to reverse the decline 
that we've seen over the last five decades. So it's working with those partners that can help us and we can help them as well. That's kind of my day to day. So I do spend quite a bit of time in the office, but also quite a bit of time at conferences and in the field working with native communities. I'm looking forward to you know visiting Alaska in a few weeks time to develop these kind of projects where we can help to alleviate some of the climate change aspects, some of the fisheries aspects that, that's impacting cultures, that's impacting behaviors, that's impacting food security. You know, how can we help? So these are some of the things that I will do on a day-to-day basis, but it's keeping a finger on the pulse. That's extremely important. You want to maintain that relevance in the world around you so that we can know where we can intervene and help. That's a pretty awesome segue when you talk about impact and relevance. Because just recently, we had a visit from someone very special to all of us, probably for for different reasons, but she's very, very well known in the the marine conservation world. We recently at the aquarium had a visit from Dr. Sylvia Earle, which I know, Dane, meant a lot to you. Can you just kind of tell us what that visit was like and, you know, kind of your feelings about Dr. Sylvia there? Well, you know, um, so I've been working with Dr. Earl for a while, developed some hope spots around. Um, so I was happy that we could mesh Georgia Aquarium when I came on board with Mission Blue, Silver Earl's Alliance, to really enhance that. I, I was very happy that we could provide some time, some interface with the young scientists here at Georgia Aquarium, the persons who are enthralled by what she's doing and totally motivated to have some face time. Because that motivation of just saying, hey, let's do it. Let's do it together and really rev them up. I think that was very, 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 very good for me. A very good experience for me to see that kind of interface. Uh, you know, we're happy that we're working with her a lot closer now to developing hope spots. Uh, we're going to be doing one in St. Helena's to make sure that that's a hope spot. And then, of course, looking to, for Alaska and some other places as well for hope spots. Spe- these special places in the world that give us hope. But it also brings attention to ocean conservation issues and, get again, getting everybody together. We're all connected. That's a very good point. And for the listeners that have have been with us from the beginning, or if you're just kind of joining us uh, here, definitely go back to episode one where I talked to to Dr. Dove about the importance and the the relevance and the incredible environment that is St. Helena. So it's a very cool opportunity. And once you guys kind of hear those stories, you'll understand why that hope spot is so important. Very much so. I mean, we've been working there for a while now. So to bring this full circle a bit and really get St. Helena's designated as a hope spot. And then, you know, it takes off from there. Mm-hmm. Bringing attention to, I mean, when persons hear about St. Helena's, they immediately Google it. Where is St. Helena's? You know, it's in the middle of the Atlantic. And not many people know anything about it. So it's a good way to kind of bring attention to that place and helps St. Helena's, you know, marine conservation um, activities as well. Absolutely. And it's very important. So, Dr. Katie, did you get a chance to meet Dr. Sylvia Earle? And is she one of those, you know, was she an inspiration to you? I actually was in the field fishing for sand tiger sharks, so I was unable to make her visit, unfortunately. Is her work something that is that? Something that kind of was a motivator to you in your career, among others? And if there's others, please. I mean, she has been inspiring. She was not necessarily my female role model. That would be taken by Dr. Eugenie Clark, a very famous female Elasmobrank research scientist. So, but that's not, again, to say that what she has done hasn't been impactful and very important for, you know, inspiring people to want to do more and to think more about our connection to the ocean. 
And as she just mentioned, too, guys, I know we, we talked about it in a past episode as well. Dr. Eugenie Clark, basically, she starts the storyline in our Sharks, Predators of the Deep gallery of that fear to fascination. She was one of the first people to really kind of dig in to kind of start myth busting before myth busting was was cool. So it was, it was really cool to learn more about her as we develop the the content and the storyline there for our, for our own Sharks gallery. It's that time again, everybody. Carly and Kelsey are here for another edition of Fin Files. I am ready for today's fun fact. What is it? Josh, today we've got a piece of trivia that I think is going to be close to your enthusiast mindset as well. So when you're seeking out pieces of this memorabilia, relics from the tiki craze of the 1950s, how do you ensure that you're getting something sustainable or something from a reputable source? I think my best guess would be to make sure that it's not made from anything that was ever living. Any type of reproduction with 3D printing being what it is today, there is nothing out there that can't be reproduced in a more ecologically friendly manner that does not include taking a live souvenir. Absolutely, or souvenirs that aren't made from animal products. So fishing floats, net floats, old nets, like ships wheels, that sort of thing is a great way to get that effect without necessarily using an endangered species derived part. That's a very good point. So for all you decorators out there enjoying your summertime, remember, anytime you're decorating for your little luau, (laughs) tiki party, something like that, make sure it's sustainable, making sure we're taking care of our oceans any way that we decorate our own homes. All right, guys, thank you so much. That was a cool one. Talk to you on the next one. So guys, this has been awesome so far, and you're, you're both extremely passionate people who are doing separate things, but as we've mentioned several times, it is all connected. And let's say we have a listener out there, and Katie, I'm going to start with you. What is your, and in the, the realm of inspirations, things like that, what is your best advice to someone that wants to be the next Dr. Katie Lyons and get a chance to become a research scientist and make an impact and be able to publish papers that can advance our scientific knowledge and and conservation legislation? Vote. (laughs) I keep saying it, but it's really important, especially right now. But besides that, I mean, if you're, you know, really passionate about science and that's, you know, what you want to get into, my advice to folks is try everything. So depending on where you are in your career, it's important just to get your feet wet. So I think a lot of us know what we like, but understanding what we don't like and what admitting to ourselves what we are not good at and what doesn't make us happy is really important because this field uh, can be very grueling. And, you know, passion is is important, but you also want to make sure you are happy in doing what it is that you're doing. And it's not, you know, necessarily easy to get into. So I always encourage, you know, my students to say like, okay, how is this degree or what you're doing going to help you achieve your end goal? And if it's not, then, you know, don't waste your time doing that. Don't waste other people's time doing that. So, you know, but you don't know that until you you try the various things. So I always encourage people to, you know, try it all. You know, you might be a lab person. You might be a field person. You might be a little bit of both, which is kind of where I fit in, as I like a nice balance of being both in the lab but also in the field. So, you know, you don't get that until you go out and, and try. Right on. Dane, same question to you. What's your, what's your best advice? Get wet. 
That's my best advice. I didn't learn to swim until I was 20 years old. Swim classes wasn't a thing in Jamaica. And it was very low on the list, not even on the list of priorities for, to spend money on. But I wanted to be a marine biologist. So people might say, I, I want people to follow my footsteps. I do not. I want people to erase my footsteps and make bigger steps. And I want to help them to erase my own footsteps. We're launching programs to, to teach kids how to snorkel, put a mask on, get into the water, getting them to dive. And that's one of the reasons I became an instructor, to teach people to dive, to teach kids from as young as 10 years old, to really harness that passion that we keep speaking about in marine sciences and giving them the tools and the advantage to be better than we were. Uh, we are, because that's the only way we can advance as a society. Your children have to be better than you because they're benefiting from everything that we've learned. And they're going to be learning and avoiding some of those mistakes that we made. And they have to be better than you. So my advice is get in the water. You know, that's where the connection is. You don't have to necessarily be a marine biologist to make an impact. There's so many citizen science programs that you can do something on a Saturday morning to make an impact. But the connection is with the water. Yes, you can be on a boat, and that's your connection as well. You can be in the lab doing marine science, and that's fine as well. That's great, because we want that everybody working in the field to really advance this. So, you know, sign me up anywhere. I'll give all of my time if I could possibly do it, just to get more people in the water as much as possible. Nice. Well, Dana, I can tell you right now, after that, I think I want to go diving with you. So let's let's plan a trip, bud. Anytime. All right, man. Sweet. So speaking of, of, of all of that, of, of getting in the water and... And that I think my last question for you both, and Dana, I'm going to start with you, of your career so far, what's just something that sticks out in your mind? What's your favorite experience or favorite memory or the thing that you just kind of look back on of like, this is why I do it? Okay, I can think of a bunch of them, but I, I, I'll give you one. I remember a, a fisherman who was extremely vocal against us and, and me setting up a fish sanctuary in, in, in his community because it took away his space, his favorite fishing ground. And two years after that, he came and shook my hand and said, thank you. I'm catching more fish outside of these sanctuaries than I've ever had, than my parents ever had that opportunity to do. And that, that was fulfilling for me. On a more personal note, I still remember my first breath underwater 8,000 dives ago. And that to me is exhilarating. It was exhilarating. And I still think about that. And I live through the eyes of my diving students, when I see their eyes light up when they breathe on the water for the first time. And that I think is one of those experiences that I will never forget, you know, that kind of connection with the ocean. That's very cool. As a diver myself, as soon as you said that, I automatically, like my brain just went back. I remember my first dive too. I remember that first time hearing that Darth Vader, Yes, so yes. you're like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know, kind of thing. It, it it doesn't get old. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And all right, Dr. Katie, same question for you. What is your one or maybe multiple kind of experiences that just kind of keep you going, that kind of stick out? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think one 
memory that comes to mind was some field work that we were doing last year. So we have a project that is a student of mine. She just recently defended her master's. So very, very proud mama bird over here for her. But her project wanted to answer the question, you know, can we use sharks as canaries in the coal mine to understand the health of Georgia's estuaries? So just for context, Georgia, while we have a very small coastline, we actually have the largest number of intact salt marshes along the eastern seaboard. So that might not sound very impactful, but considering the importance of these habitats, not just for nursery grounds for animals, but also for economies that we run on. So oyster fishing, shrimping, all of these sorts of different things. So we wanted to know, you know, can we see a relationship between what we were hypothesizing of human impact reflected in the sharks that we were out fishing for? So we are on the boat. We're doing um, what's called long lining. So it's exactly as it sounds. You put out a long line with a bunch of hooks on it. And, you know, we're, we're starting to pick up the line and you can just see this like storm that's like rolling in. And we can't leave, right? Like we have to pick up all the gear. We also don't want to get struck by lightning. So it's like, okay, we need to, you know, we really need to like get this going. And of course, it's one of those sets where there's, there's, it's like shark, 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 shark. And you're like, oh, oh my God, we have so many animals to process. And the whole team on the boat, though, just turned into this one hive mind. Like we all clicked. Somebody could hand something to somebody else because they knew that's exactly what they needed at that particular moment. And we, yeah, it's kind of hard to, to describe um, anybody that's like played team sports where you just feel like, you know, I can make every basket that I put up to the hoop. It was kind of one of those, those feelings. And um, so we got, you know, all the animals safely back. We didn't get struck by lightning, but we were completely drenched. We were working in all the thunder and rain beating down on us. But afterwards, it was just one of the most exhilarating things of just having a group of people like click together so well. So that's definitely a memory that will stick in my mind for some time. Sorry, guys. Last question. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you're just walking around the building, what's the one spot? Where are we going to find you if you're just out walking around? So it would be here. And I know, again, people listening don't know where here is, but right behind us is our Ocean Voyager Gallery. But we're on the side that a lot of people don't get to see. So if you're having, you know, a nice bash here, you might be able to rent out um, this space. But essentially, it is a window that's overlooking Ocean Voyager. So we have sawfish that are swimming behind us we have a ton of rays which are near and dear to my heart and every once in a while we get buzzed by a whale shark which is pretty cool and also probably one of the best dive spots in the entire world to see all these amazing animals all together dane how about you i just absolutely adore the shark gallery my man. at, at 7 30 a.m when it's totally quiet there's no one there and i just sit there just for a little bit uh, it, it grounds me. It gets me excited as well. But it really centers me, uh, reminds me sometimes why we do what we do to protect these species often misunderstood because sometimes I, I'm misunderstood as well. So I can relate. But is this misunderstanding and changing that? And, you know, it reminds me also of the not just the power that we have at George Aquarium, but the responsibility of changing behavior, of changing attitudes, of fear to fascination of these creatures. That's what gets me going, especially in the morning. Awesome. Guys, thank you so much. That was amazing.
We're now being joined by Chris Coco, Senior Director of Aquatic Sustainability. Now, you have a very interesting title there, Chris. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is you do here at the aquarium? Well, Josh, how you doing? Thanks for having me today. I've been here for a long time, as you know, at the aquarium, but I've, I've really recently assumed a new role, and it's really a reflection of the institution's desire to do more things with sustainable sourcing of animals and um, food items for our animals and conservation projects in general. So it's really exciting stuff coming up. Very cool. So, Chris, you and I actually, we've never worked together directly, but over the past six years, we've had some very had some very interesting kind of experiences that we've shared. One of them, if you remember, all the way back to, unbelievably, that was six years ago now, all the way back to 2016, and that crazy event that was Hurricane Matthew down there in Florida. At the time, Georgia Aquarium was associated with a really beautiful animal facility right there on the beach. And our job, we were asked to go down and help out that facility, help out those animals in what was possibly at the time supposed to be a Category 4 hurricane, which was making landfall somewhere in that central Florida area near St. Augustine where this facility was. And, And I just remember thinking back on that experience of how crazy it was that we were the only vehicle going south on I-75 when all of 75 North was a was a parking lot, if you remember that. And then getting there and, and kind of getting that facility ready and, and experiencing everything that we did from, uh, remember that lovely evening there in the shelter where 16 Georgia Aquarium employees were stuffed into a third grade classroom? Yeah, I'll tell you, there's no better way to bond with your coworkers than to be sent into the teeth of a deadly hurricane when everybody else is getting out of town. So, yeah, that was a great time. In retrospect, it was a great time. Not so great at the moment. But, yeah, the third grade classroom uh, lodging was just uh, awesome because all these grown men and women just jammed into there, surrounded by local folks who were genuinely worried about their their homes and their lives and pets and everything. So that was a bit of an eye-opener, too. Right. I remember when we were kind of picking our spots, Drew from the Dolphin Department was like, oh, I got this back corner. No one's going to be near me. Uh, you know, I'll be completely safe. He didn't realize that he picked the <laughs> picked the closest spot to the one and only bathroom in the room. So all night long, he was being woken up by yeah. everybody that was That's going right. to the bathroom. That's right. Crazy yeah. experience. But we made it through. The animals made it through. Mm-hmm. And just a, a, another adventure that, uh, you know, folks don't normally get to hear about. It's not something that we can really tell our everyday guests as they come in here. So really cool experience that you and I got to go through. And then unbelievably, only eight months later, we went through Hurricane Irma. Yeah, it's bizarre. There was a cycle there of a number of storms in Florida. And uh, here we go again, right? So uh, yeah, you just never know. I think it's kind of the, you roll the dice a little bit when you have a seaside facility, right? There are pros and cons to it. And there's some some risk you've got to mitigate. And we worked it as best we could. And one thing I'll never forget about that experience uh, with you there too, Chris, I don't know if you remember or not, but the day that Irma made landfall, was actually my 35th birthday. Mm-hmm. And you guys were very sweet as I came into the room and all that. You guys all said, happy birthday. And I'm pretty sure you or someone had gone down to the driveway and picked up a brick <laughs> that was just debris and wrapped it up. And I got to open up a giant brick for my 35th birthday. I still have it. It's in my living room to this day. So that was a, a special memory there as I'm coming up on my on my next birthday here in a couple weeks. But yeah, I'll never forget my 35th and getting that brick in the middle of a landfalling hurricane. Well, some of the most unexpected gifts are the most memorable ones, right? So yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Pretty cool. So 
with all that being said, I've known you for several years and stuff, but never really had the chance to kind of sit down like we are now to be able to really kind of dig in to what you do here and kind of explain to some folks kind of some of the the ins and outs of what it takes to keep the aquarium sustainable and things like that, as well as talk about some not really controversial topics, but some really kind of hot button conservation topics such as like animal confiscation and animal trafficking, things like that. So if you could, could you just kind of explain just a little bit of like what an animal confiscation is and how we as a facility are able to assist in things like that? Sure, sure. Of course, our location near the world's busiest airport is um, inevitably going to result in some animals that come through um, via air cargo shipments that are either lost in transit and don't make a flight connection or something like that, or have the incorrect paperwork either inadvertently by the shipper or, or otherwise. And from time to time, some of those animals are, are set aside by Fish and Wildlife Service or other agencies, typically Fish and Wildlife Service, and then they need a home, right? So they call us, and I think it really is about the partnership we have with the federal agencies and the state agencies. And at the airport, if it's an import from a foreign nation, it's typically the Fish and Wildlife Service. But we've gotten calls from Georgia DNR and Department of Natural Resources and other agencies. But it's really about working and supporting what the, these agencies are doing, one, to protect wildlife, and two, to make sure that when particular specimens find themselves without a home, for whatever reason, that they can call us and we'll, we'll rehome those animals. And there's been a number of examples, many examples over the years, and it, it sort of ebbs and flows depending upon the season, the time of year. For example, we see a lot of corals come through the system you know, 99 point something percent of, of those are shipped in legally, but occasionally they're either misnamed or the paperwork's missing or, or whatever. And then we will end up with a box of corals that we will need to home here or uh, move over to our colleagues' institutions elsewhere. So it just depends on the situation. That's very interesting that you bring them up first, because when people, I think, think of confiscated or, or trafficked animals, most likely you're probably going to think about some type of mammal or, you know, a reptile, things like that. Mm-hmm. But coral is a very interesting species to actually confiscate so it's it's cool that we can you know have the ability to to be able to accommodate and and find a home and be able to to grow that coral so it it, uh, gets a chance to to continue to grow and also tell people its story about how it was confiscated so you mentioned coral there what are some of the other species that you can think of that uh, that we've been asked to to give a forever home to or assist in finding their forever home over the years? Well, there's a number of fish species that have come through the the, um, the pipeline over the years. Most notably, and I think what uh, many of our guests have seen are upstairs in our, our touch tank, we have a number of uh, South American stingrays that were illegally imported into the States and we're, we're, they were found, you know, transiting through Atlanta's airport. And uh, those ended up with us. And we decided to keep them here as exhibit animals, tell a little story about wildlife trafficking and, and the, you know, the the risk that it poses to a lot of species around the globe. Uh, and we put them on display and turned them into a, a touch animals. So not only do our guests have an interaction opportunity to you know, have that you know, emotional connection by a two-finger touch on a stingray, mm-hmm. we also tell a story about global wildlife trafficking and the risks it poses to, to wildlife. So with these, with these stingrays, are there any other species that as guests are walking through the building, is there, are there any other species that kind of have a similar story to the stingrays, or are they the only ones that are actually on display? Well, they're the most prominent ones. We have some corals in our, our Pacific Barrier Reef exhibit that are products or the result, I should say, of, of uh, confiscations. But 
they're hard to really pick out in any given moment, if, especially for a lay person. And it's more of an ecosystem presentation there versus the, the Stingray presentation, which is more about a touch interaction. So a little more obscure when you see them on display. And we've had other animals come and go through the years. Uh, we've had some Thai catfish that were confiscated, and they grow quite large. They're a, a large uh, food fish in Southeast Asia but they're mostly extinct in their wild range. So what we see in, in culture, in food culture in Asia, is not necessarily the, the, it's the same species, but they're domesticated versions of them. We've had some of those recently, and we were able to find a, a new home for them elsewhere. But So there's examples that are kind of varied and different animals, different situations and so forth. But I think the, the stingrays are the most prominent versions of, of those on display right, right now. And not to take a dark turn, but I'm pretty sure I think I know what the answer is going to be. If we weren't able to to assist in other facilities like us, other accredited facilities aren't able to assist, the alternative probably isn't a good one, is it? Well, we try to avoid, um, you know, the dog shelter template here. We, we've held animals for many years that we could not find homes for, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, unless there's a, an animal welfare or well-being problem that we've, we've run into with, with continuing to to hold these animals, we will we will make that commitment to, to footprint and to labor to keep them alive and, and well. So that's our mission is to provide good welfare to, to animals. So there are very, very few examples that I can recall in my 30-year career where we've had to euthanize confiscated animals due to a lack of a home. Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it's very important. I'm really glad that we have the space, the ability, and the people that have the expertise as well as the, you know, the passion to care for these, these animals. That's very, very cool. So with your title being aquatic sustainability, what exactly is the sustainability aspect of it? Is it having to do with the food sources? Does it have to do with our actual population? Can you just go a little bit more into what aquatic sustainability actually is and and why it's important? Sure. Well, it's really both what you mentioned, those both areas. Um, We have a lot of marine mammals here, as you know really well, that eat a lot of food. And so that food comes from the seafood industry, typically. And as we uh, see changes in, in ocean temperatures and availability of, of food that may shift because animals are moving around and, and utilizing different areas of, of the world because their habitat's changing, we're seeing some challenges with supply. Also, the reality of we should probably be taking our game to a higher level by creating the food that we feed our own living collection. And whether it's through aquaculture or through artificial type pelleted food or, or gel foods of some sort, we need to invest our resources in doing that. Depressurize take from the wild and create a diet item that's really healthy and, and consistently so for our living collections. So that's the food sustainability part of it. We're looking at partnering up with universities and private entities to grow our own food for our living collection. On the specimen side of it, the display specimen side of it, you know, aquaculture has really advanced in the last 30 to 40 years. We've, we've moved um, beyond, say, goldfish and catfish to high-end marine ornamentals now. And there are a number of small firms that have become larger, of course, over time that have cracked the code with university research partners, I should add on spawning and, and rearing out marine ornamentals. So we really need to depressurize our desire to utilize wild specimens and get more into domestic aquaculturing of those specimens, demonstrate the, you know, the, the positives of such a thing, and meet our conservation goals as an institution. So we're really working hard to create an ornamental marine fish aquaculture program here. That's very cool. Now, you mentioned there are some organizations that have been around for 30, 40 years that are, that are getting into this now. 
Georgia Aquarium has been around for quite some time, and I believe you were here in the very, very beginning, correct? Yeah, I was hired in uh, early 2004, right? So it's been a long, um, interesting adventure, quite a journey since uh, landing here and working at an old warehouse before the aquarium was even built. We have a second and third generation offsite facility now, and we're looking to do more there. But uh, yeah, when you look at the gift that Bernie Marcus uh, bestowed upon us, uh, his philanthropy is incredible, and what we've been able to do with it over these 17, 18 years, it's, it's been just amazing and, and for me to be part of that experience. So my role is changing from when we first arrived, everybody was about bringing animals to Atlanta, right? Whether they were local animals from 30 miles away or 3,000 or, or more miles away. And now we're getting more into this creating our own living collection through propagation, artificial propagation or what have you. So, but yeah, it's, it's been quite a ride. I can imagine. I mean, you, you mentioned it there. I'm going to use your own segue against you right now. You just said, you know, traveling 3,000 miles, if not further, you were a part of the whale sharks coming to Atlanta, right? Yeah, we did several uh, transports of whale sharks from Taiwan to Atlanta, and I was on a couple of those, those transports and spent quite a bit of time in Taiwan working with our, our partners there. It's an interesting place, Taiwan. They've got quite a, a, an ocean resource. And, and the nice thing about whale sharks uh, that came from Taiwan to here is they were redirected from the market. So, you know, years ago, it was legal to, you know, collect those animals and send them to market, the local seafood market. Now that's no longer legal there, which is great. And the nice thing about our whale sharks here is that tens of millions of people have seen them, perhaps who would never get to see whale sharks anywhere else. We also have to remember we're an inland facility and folks can't necessarily do a, a whale watching tour or a scuba diving trip or those sorts of things. They put them closer to animals that we have here, whether they're whale sharks, beluga whales or other things. So yeah, they've, uh, they've been great ambassadors, the whale sharks have, for all these years. I mean, and what you said is very true. I mean, uh, this is the first and only place I've ever seen a whale shark. And you know that I'm a huge shark enthusiast mm-hmm. and I love diving and things like that. But being able to see these animals every single day, it still doesn't get old. Does it still have that little romanticism to you as well when you see oh, these guys? That, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And, and as we're talking here and I see a whale shark go out of my peripheral vision, I, it's like, wow, it's a big animal, you know? And yeah. uh, we put a lot of resources and effort here into caring for these animals. And uh, we've had them on display continuously for all these years. And we feel that in the next 30 years or more, we're going to have whale sharks here. It's going to be awesome. So when you were, when you were on that original transport, you know, Taiwan to Atlanta, that's halfway around the entire earth. Was there a moment in during that where you're just like, wow, there had to have been something with like that little just, this is very unique. Yeah, I I think there are a couple of wow moments and they're a little bit intimidating. When you first see a whale shark swimming around in a sea pen, temporary holding in a sea pen, and then you move to a transport day where we're moving the animal out with cranes onto a boat and you go to a harbor and then you go to a truck that takes the animal to the airport, two animals at a time actually. We're on a small uh, coastal city in Taiwan on the east side and they have a very short runway. So we had to charter a, a short runway heavy lift cargo plan to get us from the smaller city on central coast up to Taipei where we would connect with the 747 to go across the ocean. And so the, um, the particular cargo plane that we had was very old very old. There's a lot of duct tape in that fuselage. It was something I was very worried about getting off the ground because our load is pretty heavy. You look at 25,000 pounds per box times two boxes and a short runway that ends with a chain link fence and the ocean is next. 
So that was a, a wow moment for me as we're kind of slow speed. It felt like slow speed going down the, the runway to get off the ground there. I don't think that chain link fence was, was going to really do much at the end, no, was it? No, yeah. it just let you know that it was the end. <laughs> so right. That's but, crazy. I mean, that and that's a, a very incredible story. It almost has like that kind of uh, Indiana Jones-esque kind of vibe to it. Where you just kind of picture like that red line just moving up the coast of Taiwan to get to mm-hmm. the new airport and then flying all the way across the ocean and then boom, all of a sudden for the first time in history, there's whale sharks in Atlanta and here in the United States. I mean, that's a that's a pretty milestone achievement. It's got to be pretty cool to be a part of. Yeah, it's great memories. And uh, the, the folks were just so unified in, in our, our whole effort to make it happen, whether it's our partners, our own employees and uh, outside colleagues as helpers. So it really was a great time in, in the career. So and the other thing about it is we, we put whale sharks on airplanes when no one else had done that before. And it was just an amazing uh, effort and it all came together and was completely successful each time so so chris with all that being said and all these amazing experiences that you've had over your very long and, and distinguished career what's your best advice to the next chris coco to the next senior director of aquatic sustainability or the next whale shark caretaker the next fish and invertebrates team member what's some advice or anything you can give to the next generation of our stewards of the earth here well, I'm not sure you want, I want anyone to be the next Chris Coco, but as far as um, an aquarium professional or a zoological professional, whether it's terrestrial animals or whatever it happens to be, as a young person, I would encourage kids to get out. Get outside, poke around the woods and the creek beds and the shorelines and the tide pools and, and see what inspires you. If wildlife and the sense of discovery inspires you, then um, take that to the next level. Maybe become a hobbyist and put a little fish tank up in your, in your house or in your basement and obviously coordinate that with your parents and mess around with other animals and just get to learn what makes them tick. If you continue to be inspired and amazed and intrigued by that sort of activity, then you might already be hooked, right? So um, that's what I did and that's what really turned me on about animals. For me as a kid, it was all about reptiles and then I moved into fish a little bit later. You've got to really do well in school with science and math. I mean, it's really about the STEM core, I think. And, um, and try, if you can, to get scuba certified and get in the water and, and see if immersion into the environment is also inspiring to you. Those sorts of things, internships and just making sure you, make, you build relationships in, in school and beyond. That's how it gets you down the road in any, any career path. But as long as you feel inspired and excited by wildlife, that's a good start. And after your long career here, what still inspires you? What's next for Chris Coco? Well, what inspires me today, especially here at George Aquarium, is our ability to take what we do to another level, another more sophisticated level that's going to set us up for the next 50 years, I hope. It's a long time frame, but it really goes pretty quick. You know, for me, 18 years has just gone by in the blink of an eye, right? So I want to, I hope, set in motion some uh, foundational changes to how we operate with uh, using sustainability as a core value should be something we aspire to all the time and I'm looking forward to setting up programs that, that help well, with all of our partners here of course that get us uh, moving on that road. Very cool. Well Chris thank you so much for joining us today. One last question. I'm going to put you on the spot right here and now. If someone sees you walking around the aquarium just enjoying your walk, where's your first stop? Where's some place that you're just always going to go when you're, when you're here in the building? 
I'm probably looking at some of the planted tanks in the River Scout Gallery. Yeah, some of the uh, smaller vignette presentations that have live plants, fish, sort of the whole slice of an ecosystem, right? So it's easy to say the Ocean Voyager big reveal window in the theater section, but I think for me, zeroing in on the smaller, less obvious aspects of living creatures and plants, that's what turns me on a lot. It's interesting you say that too, because they are the the smaller habitats, but yet the story that they're telling by having the plants and animals in there is actually a telling a much bigger story because it's looking at the bigger picture of everything that's connected to to these animals and to these plants and things like that. That's right. That's right. It's a it's a sophisticated uh, world out there, right? And those habitats and those ecosystems need to stay intact. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's been great talking to yeah, you, buddy. Appreciate it, Josh. Thank you. Life Below the Surface is presented by Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Carriage is the official car dealership of Georgia Aquarium and Georgia's leading Kia dealer. Service, community, and education are hallmarks of Carriage Kia in Woodstock. When it's time for you to lease or purchase your new vehicle, we hope you'll consider Carriage Kia in Woodstock. Check them out 24-7 at carriagekiawoodstock.com. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that... We thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Life Below the Surface. If you did, please leave us a review and share this episode with your friends. Also, please tell us which topics you would like us to cover in future episodes. Send us a message in the comments or on any of Georgia Aquarium's social media channels. I'll see you in the next episode.